Lord, even as Christians, I don't think we're emotionally capable of experiencing the reality of what your word teaches about the passion of the Christ. But Lord, uh, though we try to step inside of the shoes of the disciples, though we try to discern with our minds what it must have been like to be a part of this event in history, Lord, it's beyond us, and it will ever be beyond us, and it makes us magnify you all the more. It is beyond us, Lord, that your son Jesus would do what he did. We cannot believe it, and yet we believe it. We are amazed by it, Father, and we accept it. We thank you that your son Jesus was willing to come and to be our rock, to be our Savior. As I've prayed, I pray again that you would help us. Nothing I can say can transform a heart, but Lord, you can work through the word of your word, and as I communicate it, you can transform us together. I pray that no one would leave here today without knowing Jesus as Christ, as Lord, as Savior. I pray that no one would leave here today without comfort and encouragement that comes from your word. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Gardens are usually pleasant places where happy work is performed, where fruit is plucked and eagerly sampled, and where quiet delight in God can often be found. Gardens are meant to be spaces for the simple joys, which encourage perspective and gratitude for those who walk through them. But there was no joy in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. That night, that particular garden was instead marked by great sorrow and tremendous fear and terrible injustice because in that place, the Messiah sent by God was delivered over to sinners as he began his final path to the cross. And that Messiah, that Christ, that Savior, showed wondrous fortitude. For though he had heavenly armies at his disposal, he still endured the path of suffering that was planned for him long before. And through his immense suffering, we sinners can now find a lasting, pleasant place with God himself. Indeed, the Savior's steadfast commitment led to our complete salvation. There are two realities I want us to see in this text today. The first reality is that Jesus, is that Jesus was betrayed for us. Note with me verses 47 through 50 once again. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. 
And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. One of his own twelve disciples betrayed him. Not a whole lot is revealed to us about Judas the man in the scriptures. The only information Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us is a foreshadowing of the evil deed that he would do here in our passage. In both Matthew 10 and Mark 3, Judas is simply described as the one who would betray Jesus. Luke says the same, but goes so far as to actually call him a traitor in Luke chapter 6. The Gospel of John gives us a tiny bit more information about this man, for in John chapter 6, we learn that Judas was the son of a man named Simon Iscariot. And in John 12, when a certain woman came to Jesus and poured out an expensive ointment upon him, we find that it was Judas who actually questioned why such an expense wasn't sold with the proceeds given to poor people. Though that passage also tells us that Judas had no genuine concern for the poor, but he was in charge of the group's money bag and that he used to help himself to what was inside of that bag. So greed was a key motivator for Judas. Earlier in this chapter of Matthew, we see that Judas's actions here were premeditated and that they were driven by earthly gain. If you look back at verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. For thirty pieces of silver, a large amount of money, but certainly not enough to set him up for life, Judas became the betrayer of our Lord. Betrayer, literally in the Greek, is one who hands over. He betrayed Jesus by willingly pointing him out to the Lord's enemies so that he could be handed over to them in secret, away from the passionate crowds who were assembled in Jerusalem at that time for the Passover. This man was one of Christ's twelve disciples. He had followed Jesus around Galilee and Judea for several years. He ate with Jesus. He camped out with Jesus. He was teaching, learning to teach, sitting underneath the teaching of Jesus. And he even witnessed all of the wondrous acts and miracles that Jesus performed. He was one of Christ's special twelve. He was the Lord's friend. What other word would you give it? And no doubt, because Judas was disillusioned by the Lord's spiritual kingdom approach in place of his own desired Jewish kingdom victory, and also because he desired a certain amount of money, Judas willingly handed over our Lord to violent men who would kill him. Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus, Jesus was betrayed by a friend. And Jesus was betrayed by him with a most affectionate greeting. 
While Jesus was still speaking, while he was still telling Peter and James and John, back in verse 46, that his betrayer was at hand, Judas entered the Garden of Gethsemane with a great crowd who were well-armed and ready for a fight if necessary. These men came on behalf of the chief priests and the elders of the people, so they came on behalf of the religious leaders of the land. The religion of the world was lined up against Jesus, and Judas has taken his side with them. And Judas prepared these men beforehand, telling them that he would identify Jesus with a specific sign. And that day prior to pictures and media promotion, even the most well-known people could be hard to identify by the face. So Judas told these armed men, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. In that day and culture, though it might seem strange to us today, a kiss was the conventional greeting of a disciple to a rabbi, and it carried the meaning of tremendous respect and affection. This would have been the normal way that Judas greeted Jesus. And so it was not without purpose that Matthew recorded this greeting by Judas because it reveals in one singular action both the affection and the deep-seated duplicity that was happening here in this moment. In verse 49, Judas came up to Jesus in the garden and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus was his rabbi. He had been his teacher now for quite a long while, and Judas greeted him with both a title and a kiss. He was extremely respectful in his extreme disrespect. And Christ's response in the next verse is both ambiguous and heart-wrenching. In verse 50, Jesus either says, Friend, do what you came to do, as it says in the ESV translation that I'm using this morning, or it says something like, friend, why are you here? So a statement or a question. And the language in the Greek is ambiguous here, as it is very hard to determine which way to go. But whether it's a command or a question by the Lord, what astonishes us most here is Christ's usage of the word friend. Though this word was common in that day, used in many differing scenarios and situations, one cannot help but sense a level of emotion with Christ's employment of that word. Friend, my friend, do what you came to do. Then the Savior of sinners was seized by sinners. They came up, they laid hands on Jesus, and they seized him. The Son of God was seized by sinful men. They laid their hands on the author of life. They laid their hands, they violently grabbed even, and bound the creator of all breath. Think of it. They had the audacity to raise up their hands in violence against the Son of God himself. What blind wickedness was conducted by these men? Indeed, the Savior of sinners was seized by sinners. And we should consider the weightiness of Christ's betrayal here. 
a great injustice was done towards the Son of God when his own friend turned his back on him and when he was wrongfully snatched away by wicked persons who would soon nail him to a cross of wood. This was corrupt. This was disgraceful. This was cruel. This was brutal tyranny. This was atrocious villainy. How dare they lay their hands on the Son of God? And yet, this Jesus endured for us. Never forget that Jesus was betrayed by a close friend in order to save a bunch of distant rebels. Jesus was betrayed by one whom he trusted and embraced in order to save people like me who have gone my own way away from God in hopeless rebellion in my sin and people like you who are in the same boat. And this betrayal of our Lord should impact us. It should impact how we view friendship, I think. We should understand that on this side of eternity, we will likely be disappointed in our friendships. Disappointed by the very people we greatly value and trust. Our friends may hide things from us. They may carry grudges against us. They may mistreat us. They may attempt to use us. And they may even turn their backs on us as Judas did to the Lord. Because our friends are human beings and because sin has corrupted every human heart, including the hearts of our friends, we have no perfect friends here to turn to. Therefore, we must be very careful to never elevate our friendships to places where only Jesus, the true friend of sinners, belongs. But this does not mean that we should give up on friendship. For though flawed, friends are a gift from God, handed down from the Father of lights himself. What this means is that we should press into developing strong Christian friendships with the gospel as their foundation, which have holy joy as their goal, which are fanned into flames by heavenly truth, and which are open to mutual accountability. Friends like the remaining 11 became and proved in their lives following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need deep friendships with the people of Jesus, which have the joy of God as their goal. Now, I myself don't have a long list of close friends, but the ones I have are very dear to my life in God because these friendships direct me constantly back, sometimes painstakingly so, but direct me constantly back to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I would even say that I am where I am because of good friends. And Christ's betrayal should also impact how we approach discipleship. Discipleship is the active ministry of helping another believer mature as a follower of Christ. Discipleship utilizes the intentional tools of Bible study and God-given biblical wisdom and hard-earned life example 
and a whole lot of prayer to help other believers become more like Jesus until the point where they themselves actually begin to disciple other people. Discipleship, in fact, is at the very heart of our church's buying team ministry here at Riverside, which seeks to spur on this kind of intentional discipleship here at our church. But understand, the definition of discipleship is not what's hard. What's hard is actually performing this ministry because people are often very difficult. And when we become vulnerable to them in order to help them, they sometimes end up hurting us. They may be terrible at keeping appointments. They may let distractions get in the way of learning and growth. They may reject our counsel. They may act with stubbornness. They may return to a life of sin for a time. And they may even walk away from the faith. But if this happens to us as we minister to people, we are actually in good company. For not only Jesus, but also the Apostle Paul had people he invested in who abandoned him. Paul, in the same line as Christ, he says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 15, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Men he knew, men Timothy knew, who once walked, who once Paul had invested in, now had turned away from him. He says also in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that Demas, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. A man he devoted himself to, sought to build up Christ in. This man named Demas, who loved the world so much, like Judas, that he abandoned Paul, abandoned the ministry. This is commonplace for Christians if we're involved in discipleship, which every Christian should be. This is commonplace that people will abandon us. We will be hurt. There are great joys and there are also pains that come in people ministry. And such difficulties shouldn't push us away from a commitment to discipleship but we should be aware that when we do this, we are entering into the sufferings of Christ as we too spill ourselves out for people. I think Paul embodied this when he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, even if I am being to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. My whole life is poured out so that you could grow in faith that I rejoice in this. Oh, we too must be glad simply because we are being used by King Jesus to build up his people. Second reality today. Not only was Jesus betrayed for us, but Jesus was committed to God's plan for us. Verse 51. And behold... One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? 
But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. One of Christ's disciples here responded in the flesh. Can you imagine the emotion of that moment for the rest of the Lord's disciples? Well-armed soldiers just arrived without warning. And it appears that Judas, one of their ministry brothers, was with them and appeared to actually be in league with them. And now these soldiers have laid their hands on Jesus himself, the Messiah that they all swore to stand by just a few hours before. So now one of them acted. No doubt out of fear and misplaced zeal, this unidentified disciple did not listen to Jesus when he told him earlier that night that he would soon betray him three times. This disciple also didn't listen when Jesus asked him to pray that night in the garden because his spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. We don't know why Matthew chose to not identify this disciple, but the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 10, tells us clearly that it was Peter who cut off the servant's ear, a servant of the high priest by the name of Malchus, in fact. Peter acting according to his own mind and not the mind of God, drew his sword from its place, swung it at this other man, and he actually cut off his ear. And in case you didn't know, Luke 22, verse 51 tells us that Jesus proceeded to touch this man's ear, and can you believe it? He healed that man's ear. This was Peter walking by the flesh. The cross was why Jesus came to die. But Peter was not yet in line with God's plan. And as you may recall, this type of fleshly attitude by Peter had been brewing for some time. If you remember back to chapter 16, verses 22 and 23, when Jesus informed the disciples that the cross was in his future, it says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter still did not accept that the cross was the only path for the Messiah. He still did not understand that the blood of the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, would need to be spilt, not just for the sins of others, but for Peter's own sins. And then Jesus, in his response, gives his opinion of the sword. In verse 52, I don't think Jesus is being categorical enough to state that he's demanding full-blown pacifism on the part of his followers. But Jesus is certainly saying here that when it comes to his own defense, his own defense, there is no place for physical violence. 
and that a believer's general disposition towards this lost world should not be one of armed, violent struggle, but one of patient, spiritual confrontation, where the power of the gospel is boldly put forth in word and deed, battling with the spiritual end and not the physical end. After all, this is remarkably similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when it says in Matthew 5, 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Christians respond in the Spirit. We respond with love. We respond with trust in the God who's above. Our first instinct when Jesus is seized should not be to draw a sword. Our first instinct at hearing about the seizure of Jesus is to say, it is only by his cross, only by his resurrection, that I can ever be saved. And it is only that word that it will ever, ever, ever save someone who hates me and hurts me. My aim, my responsibility must be their salvation. Those who take up the sword, Jesus says in verse 52, trusting its ability to defend and kill, leave themselves open to death by the sword. Those who choose violence as their means of achievement often end up dying by violence. Now, according to Romans 13 and other places, the sword of authority has been given by God to the governments of this earth which he has ordained, and that is right. But generally speaking, a sword of metal is not for Christ's disciples, for we have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now notice here that Jesus refused the easy way out. Look again at verse 23. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? My friends, can you fathom what Christ is alluding to here? One legion, according to the structure of Roman armies, was about 6,000 soldiers. And 12 legions, perhaps one legion for both Jesus and each of his remaining 11 disciples, would be around 72,000 angels if you took him literally. Jesus is saying that he has the ability to call down such a mighty force from heaven that this band of men, armed with simple human swords and clubs, would make up a ridiculous opposition to him. He's essentially saying to Peter, don't you get it? If I wanted to, I could make all of this go away. As the Son of God, I have heaven at my disposal. What Jesus is really telling us is that he's heading to the cross because he is willing to go to the cross to secure a kingdom filled with redeemed people. John 18, verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. It's not of this place. It's a spiritual people that I'm making. And one day it's going to come here to this place. But my kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, Jesus says. 
And Jesus is choosing to lay his life down here for sinners. The Son of God is willingly heading to the cross for people like you and for people like me. While speaking of laying down his life, Jesus said in John 10, 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He has authority over his own death. He has authority over his own resurrection. Jesus refused the easy way. Instead, he willingly took the path of the cross. And all of the injustice done to Jesus was to fulfill God's word. According to verse 54, Jesus refrained from calling an angelic host because the scriptures needed to be fulfilled. God had said things in the Bible, and because he's God who only acts in truth, his word had to be kept. And according to verses 55 and 56, Jesus makes it clear that these men could have nabbed him at any time while he was teaching in the temple. But instead, they came at him with unrighteousness, treating him like a thief, like a common criminal, though he had done no wrong. These men acted with political and moral cowardice. And now they deprived Jesus of what was right and what was honorable. But all this took place so that the scriptures of the Old Testament prophets might be fulfilled. It was prophesied by the psalmist that Christ's stone friends would painfully abandon him. Psalm 88, verse 8 and 18 say, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become my darkness. Understand, it was according to God's plan and knowledge that Judas betrayed Christ. And it was according to God's plan and knowledge that the rest of his disciples fled from him and left him there alone, as verse 56 tells us they did. All of these events were in fulfillment of the ancient scriptures. And what the prophet Isaiah wrote of the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus, hear this. Isaiah said, Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This prophecy was that Jesus would die, taking the place of sinners like me, so as to intervene for sinners like me. My friends, he came to die in order to save. If you've been going through this book of Matthew for the last couple of years, then perhaps you recall chapter 1 of this gospel. That a salvation was the very reason why Jesus came to earth. In fact, it's the very reason why he was given the name Jesus. In Matthew 1, 21, the angel said to Joseph, 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Jesus would come. He would even be named Jesus, a name which means Savior or Deliverer. And he would come for the purpose of saving his people. Jesus sovereignly, willingly, and obediently laid his life down in keeping with God's holy word. God had planned for the salvation of us even before the world's foundation. And he had promised it for many centuries, even after mankind's rebellion. And now he brought it to fruition in Jesus Christ, just as he declared. What a glorious God. What a glorious God who keeps such an amazing word. We must recognize what God has long had in store for us. His prophets declared it centuries in advance. That a deliverer would come for God's people. A deliverer who would suffer faithfully as God's servant. And these messengers of God told us that this suffering servant would accomplish our forgiveness through his own death and bring about our healing through his own wounds. For God had long planned to save sinners that they might be forgiven and restored and transformed into his people. This is why Jesus was sent for us. And it was all according to plan. We must also recognize the strength of Christ's commitment to his Father's will. As the Son of God, legions of angels were at his beck and call. And no Pharisee, no chief priest, and certainly no Roman conqueror could ever withstand his mighty host. The only reason Jesus was taken by such force in this passage is because King Jesus allowed it to happen. Because he was committed to his Father's will, committed to the covenant the triune God made before the foundation of the world to save sinners, because of this commitment, Jesus fulfilled Scripture and let himself be taken. He yielded himself to the Father's will. He fully knew what awaited him. He knew of the mocking and the shame that was to come. He knew of the cruel affliction and the agonizing cross that was on its way. He knew of the unbearable separation that would occur between he and the Father. And he knew about death itself. And yet for the joy set before him, the joy of a redeemed people one day by his side, Jesus endured the cross despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ was faithful to the plan of God so that you and I could be made right with God. Do you see it? Do you believe it? And recognizing all of this, we should respond in at least three ways. First, we should respond with happy faith in a Savior who became a willing sacrifice. Oh, my friends, Jesus has offered you a gift. It is gruesome. It is horrible. It is heart-wrenching. It is astonishing. It is terrible what happened to him. And yet, it's all gift for you. It's all for you. 
because God loved you. God loved you, and Jesus died for you. Oh, my friend, it's a gift. It's offered. It's brutal, it's ugly, and it's glorious. It's for you. So, my friend, I plead with you. Believe the Bible. Believe God's word. Believe in Jesus and take him now as your Savior and Lord. And secondly, we should respond with steadfast reliance upon a God who is fully in control. Anything that happened to Jesus was ordained by God for a very good purpose. And Christian, I'm not overstating here, anything that happens to you has also been ordained by God for a very good purpose. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why? How? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's what that means. Everything, everything that God is doing in your life, he is doing to conform you, Christian, to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And though that may hurt, it is very good. Everything God is doing is to teach you, is to shape you, is to shave off those aspects of you that are not trusting and to make you reliant upon him, prayerful in him, so that you might actually become in your life, in your actions, your character, and your words more like him. Everything he does is to make you look more like Jesus. And third, we should respond with spiritual zeal which is mightier than any earthly sword. We must be disciples who are marked by dependent prayer so that when opportunities to sinfully respond in the flesh come our way, we instead react with the attitude of Christ. The difference between us and Peter is only prayer. The difference between you acting as Peter and you not acting as Peter is prayer. That's the difference. Look at the previous passage. We must help each other in this by shaping things like our small group times even into something far greater and more important than moments of mere personal connection. By instead working hard in God's strength to bring strong relationships where we truly seek to help each other in the midst of our weaknesses. Not just pretending to do life together, but getting down in the dirt and doing life together. We must also be disciples who so highly elevate the person of Jesus Christ in our minds and hearts 
by prioritizing our communion with God and by relishing the gathering of his people, that this world and its transient order begins to show its weak hand, that it's all bluff, that it doesn't have the cards that this world has no way to satisfy the Christian heart. And once again, we must help each other in this by constantly holding up the diamond that is Christ and his gospel before each other that we might begin to see its beauty and see the world and all of the ways that it's tarnished and then choose Christ. And we must be disciples who recognize the true need of the overwhelming amount of people in the North Tampa metro area. Indeed, the true need of the staggering majority of the people of this world, which is to be reconciled to God. And we together, through one gospel conversation after another, through an ever-growing commitment to make disciples among each other, and through each dollar given to reach the nations, we must seek to declare the work of Jesus to all people and all peoples. This is our task. Oh, my friends, the Savior's steadfast commitment led to our complete salvation. Jesus was betrayed for us, and Jesus was committed to God's plan for us. Let us respond to him in faith. Let's pray. We wish there were more words to say thank you, God, for what you have done. And yet, Father, you see our hearts. You see the way your word has humbled us. You see the way your word has made us happy in you, thankful for you, glad, Father, that we have you. You see that. Though, Lord, it is tarnished still by our own flesh, our sinfulness, Lord, you are seeing our hearts that lord we love you for what you have done and we thank you help us i pray lord to be a people of spiritual zeal to be those father who upon considering christ on the cross father we respond with humility and burden burden for those who need christ oh lord i pray would you help us to be faithful in going forth as an army of tender, compassionate gospel bearers that we might share his wonderful message with those all around us. And I ask that you would allow Riverside to do things beyond its size by enabling us, Father, to support and encourage those who go to people who have not heard the name of Jesus. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name.